In the mid-2000s, Harvard and Princeton eliminated early decision. They explained early decision gave wealthier, more privileged students an unfair advantage, and this was a way of leveling the playing field. But five years later, both schools quietly announced they were restoring early decision. I don't tell you this story to make Harvard and Princeton look bad. Really, this is just one of the many, many times that elite universities have failed to follow through on their promises to give poor kids and minorities a better shot. What I see a lot of is glorifying perfectly worthy efforts that will ultimately make no difference. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, can a college education boost social mobility? One of the great American beliefs is that a college education gives us a chance at moving up a rung in society. But is that still true today? Scott Jazchik is a co-founder and editor of Inside Higher Ed. He recently spoke at Old Dominion University's Social Mobility Symposium, and he shared a few changes that he thinks could actually make a difference. As a journalist, I'm constantly getting pitched stories about how various colleges are doing wonderful things for social mobility. They've added a scholarship program. They're admitting more Pell-eligible students, whatever. And I am very dubious. The trend I see is colleges doing one good thing for social mobility while they are not questioning three bad policies that hold it back. Number one, the counselor to student ratio needs to be a top issue if you want to deal with this issue. Nationally, the American uh, Association of School Counselors recommends a ratio of 250 to 1 for high school students. And this is, of course, not just counselors who focus on going to college. These are the counselors who deal with disciplinary issues, who deal with all kinds of issues that have nothing to do with college prep. But the idea is 250 students to 1. In California, the ratio is 822 to 1. Now, you can't be surprised that students don't get good information if they can't see their counselors. Likewise, you can't blame the counselors. In lots of high schools, the counselors, it's like a, you know assembly line. They see, look at the student, say, okay, are you the top student in the school? Therefore, I'll recommend you go to the flagship. If you're everyone else, I'll send you to the local institution. If you have to see 822 students, you can't do very much with them. The reality is, and if you want to talk about social inequity, if you send your child to a relatively well-off school, you're going to get pitched to hire a private counselor. More than 40% of students undermatch, which means they go to institutions that are not as good academically as they could. And the African-American rate is higher, and the low-income rate is higher. Then take policies of colleges. Early decision. Early decision, overwhelmingly evidence, favors wealthier students. You know, a few years ago, there was a push. Harvard and Princeton scaled it back. But then when Yale and others didn't follow, they returned to early decision. If you need to make your decision in part based on the financial aid package, you don't apply early. The role of transfer. 
and now I promised you I was going to bash an elite institution, and I'll do so now. This year, something historic happened. Princeton University admitted transfer students for the first time since 1990. As a official university policy, Princeton didn't admit a single transfer student from 1990 till now. What is the underlying belief behind that policy? The underlying belief is that all great talent could be identified by the time you're age 17. I would say that's a flawed belief. And what's interesting is that Princeton and a lot of private colleges are starting to recruit, pay more attention to transfers. At the same time, though, we have this bizarre situation where the president of the United States doesn't want community colleges focused on transfers. He has said four times in the last two months that they should only focus on vocational ed. Now, part of that is a geographic thing, I think, that he comes from the Northeast. If you go to Florida, in many of the Florida's public four years, a majority of students start at community college. Same in California, Texas. There aren't enough spaces in the four-year publics to educate all the freshmen and sophomores. If you want to look at minority bachelor's degree holders, even a larger percentage of them start at community colleges. Transfer is absolutely crucial if you want to talk about social mobility. I think it is the shift that is taking place in higher ed. But it's not just enough to do what Florida does. I was talking to a president of a community college in Florida that transfers huge numbers to uh, the four years near his institution. I said, so are you pretty pleased because he's transferring so many? He said, well, yes and no. I said, well, what should they be doing? He said, they take them in, but one, they don't always award credit, and two, the entire place is designed for traditional freshmen. I said, what do you mean? He said, my students, one, they really care about transfer credit. You got to work that out. But the entire student life apparatus is built about Greek life, athletics, parties, all things his students couldn't care less about. So you have institutions in Florida where half the students are transfer students, but 98% of student life is designed for the 18-year-old. What do transfer students tend to want? They want a career center oriented around their issues, which may be different because they may be older students who didn't have a straight line in life. And they want practical things, like they want a place with computers that they can study in between classes because they're commuters and they don't have a dorm room to go to. This is a change in mentality that you need. And so again, to me, it's just, it's, so many of these things make the poor social mobility not shocking at all. Public honors colleges, they do great things in some ways. They provide a great experience, in some ways equivalent to a private college experience at a public college rate. But what are the demographics of the public honors college? What does it do when the best students are treated super well and everyone else isn't? One of my nieces just graduated in the honors college of a public flagship. And she got dorm just with honors students priority registration, more academic advising, more opportunity to work, all great. 
and she took advantage of it, and it's wonderful. So public honors colleges are great for those who are in them, but what share of resources go to them as opposed to everyone else? Okay, online education. Lots of states are adopting policies to require or encourage more students to take courses online, and this can be a great thing. But I like to apply a test when I hear about such a program. And the test I like to apply is, will this affect the governor's daughter? If online education is good for Joe Schmo, it should be good for the governor's daughter. So much research shows that online education is most effective with the best students who have the least needs. If MIT announced tomorrow or Virginia Tech announced tomorrow that it was converting the entire freshman year experience to online, I bet they would do fine. I doubt that's the case here. Okay, now I wanna talk about general education and the humanities and the liberal arts. Stevens Point in Wisconsin, what the officials are saying is like, we have an English major at Madison. We have a history major at Madison, and Madison's a great university. Call me old-fashioned, but I actually think those things matter at all kinds of institutions, even if you don't have a lot of students majoring in those fields. Because students take a course, students have an experience. I actually think the world would be a better place if all college graduates had at least once deeply read a novel or studied a culture different from their own. When these departments are gutted, they are gutting the possibility for that happening at many of your institutions. And when you talk about social mobility, you're talking about the ability of your graduates to truly interact in a broader world where people have read novels and experienced different cultures and have knowledge beyond the major. And there is a false narrative that the only way you get ahead is by being a pre-professional. In fact, there are data that show that's not true. Now to talk about sort of some, some of the ugliness on campus. We are in terrible times on campus race relations. Like not a week goes by that we're not writing about really ugly things going on. And it is affecting students. If you want to be an institution that cares about social mobility, you have to look at the campus climate. There are so many parts of the college experience that people don't think about. A good friend of mine uh, who came from a very poor rural family got an all-expenses scholarship to one of the wealthiest, most prestigious universities in the country. And she arrived on the first day of orientation before the dining halls opened with no money. Didn't occur to her that she wasn't gonna be fed on day one. So on day one, she was getting a job at the 7-Eleven. So to go back to what I said earlier about why I'm so cynical, it's not that I don't believe colleges are adding scholarships and doing this, that, and the other, but I see all these policies, some of them getting worse as colleges long for more full-pay students that run counter to that.
Scott Jaschik is a co-founder and editor of Inside Higher Ed. He was the keynote speaker at the Social Mobility Symposium hosted by Old Dominion University. Coming up next, choosing between buying textbooks and paying the electricity bill. Community colleges have long been leaders in providing higher ed to underprivileged students. And part of helping them succeed means paying attention to what's going on outside of the classroom. Adriana Gallo has the story of how Virginia community colleges are stepping up to make sure their students have the food, shelter, and transportation needed to get them to a degree and a better job. Siamara studies photography and digital media at Northern Virginia Community College. I consider myself an artist, art in general. That's one of my passions. Actually, the last picture that I took was a still picture for school. I, I didn't even think that I was going to do this contest, but one of my professors invited me for it. She's like, you're going to do the contest, right? And I mean, this is my like, first year there, and I'm like, okay, you think so? You think it's really good? Yeah, why not? Not only did she enter the photography contest, she actually won the contest. I was one out of 10 students that won, and there was like over 100 students. And I was blessed to be one of those people that won, you know? CMR is probably not what you think of when you imagine a college student. Her schedule's tough, and she takes on a lot of different roles. I'm a, like, full-time mom, you know, I'm a full-time employee, and I'm a full-time student. So that's crazy, right? But I do it. It makes makes my brain, you know, expand and makes me happy. The stress of all those responsibilities constantly weighs her down. She worries about keeping up. It's a struggle every day. It, it, it makes it difficult when you have all these bills piling up and you don't know where they're going to pay for it. A lot of college students face these kinds of struggles. Fortunately, some community colleges are stepping in to help their students manage their lives outside of the classroom. My name is Rochelle Thompson, um, and I'm the program coordinator at Northern Virginia Community College for our financial stability program. Thompson says the financial stability program originally focused just on hunger. A fairly high percentage of our students were reporting that they were skipping meals and that they didn't have enough food to eat or they had bought food once but they didn't have enough money to buy food again to get them through the month. A survey on campus found that 31% of households were making choices about whether to pay for tuition and education or food. When students are faced with these types of budgetary decisions, the thing that ends up suffering the most is food because students sort of think, well, I can just go without eating today um, and then I'll be able to use that money to buy the book that I need for my math class. It's hard to learn when you're hungry. It's hard to uh, focus or do well in a test if your tummy is grumbling, right? So Nova started food pantries across their campuses. It didn't take long to realize that food wasn't the only financial challenge facing students. Some of our students were homeless. They were sleeping on their friends' couches. They were jumping from place to place, and they couldn't afford um, you know, to rent a room somewhere. We found that a lot of our students were underemployed, or they were trying really hard to find employment, but they weren't finding the right you know, type of employment that was going to provide them with enough income to get through the month. Um, we found that our students needed clothing. They needed school supplies. The goal for the college is to try to get students closer to their academic finish line. Leela Bradshaw works with a similar program where she's the Dean of Student Services. How can students be successful if their basic needs aren't met? 
So if they're dealing with being homeless, if they're dealing with, you know, I don't have child care, how am I going to go to school? Many students travel long distances just to get to class. We do have a um, unexpected financial emergency assistance program here at Mountain Empire to assist students. You know, if we have a student who, let's say, their transmission went out on their vehicle and they had to purchase a new transmission or um, help pay for that, then You know, they may not have funds to um, have gas for their vehicle or they may not have funds then to cover child care. So then we could assist in, in that area. Bradshaw views these programs as an insurance policy against student withdrawal. I just think that you have to look at the student as a whole, and that includes their strengths, their weaknesses. It includes, you know, what they're um, what they're dealing with, what their family's dealing with. Rochelle Thompson, the program coordinator from NOVA, says these kinds of wraparound services can disrupt a cycle of poverty that can drag students down. Um, We know that the very reason that they're here at NOVA is to better their lives and better their economic situation. And if they're leaving NOVA because of those hardships, then the cycle just keeps going round and round, right? For Siamara, the photography student, the financial stability program helped keep her lights on. I was so grateful that they were able to help me with that. I mean, my light bill was going to get cut off. They made me feel so, like, welcomed and, like, this is okay. Like, it's okay to ask for help. Someday, Siamara wants to be a big-time photographer traveling the world, and she's gaining confidence through her classes. It's exciting because when you go back, like, in this mindset as an adult, you wish you would have had the mindset like this back in high school. Like, I feel like I'm making up for so many different things. She feels really good about being in school. And I'm making my mom proud, and I'm making my kid proud, and I'm making myself proud. Most importantly, CMR wants other students to know that it's okay to ask for help, and that asking for help is one more step towards a better life. For With Good Reason, I'm Adriana Gallo. Makola Abdullah is the president of Virginia State University. He believes wholeheartedly that higher education should be the ticket up. But he sees some institutions that have moved away from that mission. That's why he's calling Virginia State University Virginia's Opportunity University. President Abdullah, you ended up at Howard University, the great historically black college in Washington, D.C., because your mother insisted on it, even though you had lots of other options. Tell me that story. Well, I tell you, thank you for asking. Uh, (laughs) My mother was a a proud uh, Howard grad, a a fan of our historically black colleges and universities. And and when I graduated from high school, I had a number of scholarships to go to some some quite prestigious institutions. And then she said, no, I think that you should consider Howard University. And I told her, Mom, well, you don't understand. I've got choices. I've, I've, I've got these scholarships, and it's a decision I have to make. And she said, son... I don't think you understand. <laughs> she said, if you choose not to go uh, to Howard, then you will be uh, disowned. I won't buy you any underwear. I won't buy you a plane ticket home. And so you will not be in my house if you don't go to Howard University. And so that was the best decision that I never made. Uh, I'm proud that my mother <laughs> uh, helped me make that decision uh, because I really believe that it changed the course of my life. What did Howard give you that you might not have had elsewhere? You know, it gave me a, a community a community of, of, of professors, of, of colleagues, of friends, in an environment where it was really comfortable for me to learn. 
while I was becoming the best engineer, uh, getting the best skills that I could as an engineer, and just to have that supportive environment for me really meant everything. So should every black person go to an HBCU or simply have an HBCU on the list of schools they consider? I wouldn't go as far as to say that, that every uh, black young person should choose an HBCU, but I do think that everyone should have one on their list. I think they should visit and, and consider uh, one of our over 100 uh, historically black colleges and universities because I believe that we provide an incredible value and a transformative education. You have been making great strides in grant-getting, branding, working with lawmakers on so many fronts since you came to Virginia State University two years ago. But would you candidly list for me the challenges your school faced when you arrived? When I arrived at Virginia State University, we had quite a few challenges. There were people uh, when I arrived who were really beginning to ask the question of what was Virginia State University's place in the Commonwealth of Virginia and its ability to, to educate students. I knew a lot about Virginia State, and I knew that that while some of the stories were, were challenging stories, that, that that didn't really accurately reflect the great work that the faculty and staff were doing every day. Some of that work isn't uh, you know, terribly exciting. It's not, it's not newspaper worthy. And I'm talking about some of the small things. When, when a faculty member takes a young person to Walgreens to take a picture so they can get a passport, or someone else, a staff member teaching a young man how to tie a tie so he can get ready for his first interview. These are the kinds of stories that happen over and over at Virginia State, and they might not make the newspaper, but these are the kind of transformative experiences that I think students and uh, prospective students and families want to know about their institution, that the institution cares about them and wants to see them succeed. You have said that you want Virginia State University to be an opportunity university, but Mm -hmm. aren't all universities opportunity universities? Don't we Americans believe higher education is the ticket up? Higher education is the key to what we all think of as the American dream. And what worries me sometimes, and that's why I wanted to highlight it for Virginia State and call Virginia State University Virginia's Opportunity University, is because that I believe that there are some institutions that have begun to move away from that ideal, where no longer are they providing a level of education for those who need access and opportunity. And so since that has been a part of our mission for 136 years, we remain a part of that mission and we're committed to it even when others may not be as committed to it. Such as what, candidly? Such as which institutions? I think it starts with the elite institutions, but I think the trouble with the rankings is that now we have many institutions chasing the rankings of the elite institutions. And so you have the elite institutions. Many of them are not providing the level of access across the board, that they're not repre- they don't representatively uh, represent uh, uh, the constituencies of the United States. But now we have other institutions, some public, some private, who in the effort to chase rankings are trying to be more like the elite institutions and are moving away from their original missions of providing access and opportunity. And at Virginia State University, we won't do that. What what are you seeing? This has changed fairly recently. I think so. There's such an emphasis on rankings, on metrics, and some of the metrics are just the wrong metrics if not put into proper context. And so one of the the important metrics, and I do believe it's important, is, is graduation rates. Um, all of our institutions should be trying to improve our graduation rates. And, and we at Virginia State are trying to do that as well. As a matter of fact, I believe if you don't have a graduation rate of 100%, then you're not doing all of the work you need to do. And so we want to be at 
Uh, but we also really understand and recognize that one of the keys to graduating uh, for young people is to is having the resources available uh, to be able to do that. And far too many young people, the reason why they leave school is not because they're not ambitious enough. It's not because they're not prepared enough, but it's because they don't have the resources to be able to finish. And so that rate is generally more of a function of the level of family income of those students coming into the university. Then if we overvalue that metric, what many institutions can do or may do is to begin to deny access to those young people whose finances are on the margins. And that's exactly what we we don't want to do. We have talent here in the United States. We have so many young people uh, who want access to to, to chase their dreams, and we've got to be able to provide that here. Uh, I know that there are some who who are beginning to question the value of a college degree, that it's not for everybody. And while I certainly understand that that, uh, that is true, I think that it's important that we, we don't limit that to try to steer uh, young people because they don't have the, the family income into the trades and make sure that they have an opportunity to really become uh, some of the best in the country. What are the funding challenges for you? Do you feel that... Virginia State University has been historically underfunded. I feel like that there's that Virginia State University has been uh, historically underfunded. Uh, there's there have been some uh, in in recent years that has gotten better, um, but I think the the bigger challenge is this: is that when you're committed to providing quality opportunity uh, to those who have been historically underserved, um, we are always trying to do every single thing we can to make sure that we're as efficient as possible, while at the same time trying to keep our costs, uh, our tuition uh, costs as, as affordable as we can. We are, um, we are the most affordable institution uh, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and that's because we care very much about, uh, about making sure that we pass along only efficient costs uh, to our students. And so with that, um, you know, we understand that in some ways we'll always be in a place where we may have, um, you know, less dollars than others because we've chosen to make sure that we keep our tuition dollars at an affordable level. Um, we are always interested in having the state uh, continue to invest <laughs> in Virginia State University and also to continue to invest in young people, uh, as we as we always hope that the federal government continues to do also. President Abdullah, thank you for talking with us and with good reason. And we can't resist going out with a piece of music from the vaunted Trojan Explosion. Anyone who's ever been to any of our campuses knows that uh, that we love our marching bands. is nothing like an HBCU marching band. And so I'd love to, to, to give you a little bit of the Trojan Explosion as we leave the interview. <laughs> the VSU Trojan Explosion. Nicola Abdullah is president of Virginia State University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. In 2012, total student debt in America surpassed $1 trillion. 
Students took to the streets in protest. Five years later, the average student debt load continues to rise. It's now $37,000. But the pain of student debt is not felt equally. My next guest is Jason Hool, an assistant professor of sociology at Dartmouth College. He says our conversation about student debt has a long way to go. What we kind of hear is these two competing camps. And on the one hand, you have the folks who say, you know, student loan debt is a great investment. We shouldn't be worried about it. This is not a crisis. Um, everything is fine. Nothing to see here. On the other hand, you have folks who are like, you know, student loan debt uh, is a crisis. The sky is falling and, you know, we're all going to die. Right. Um, so there's a lot of hyperbole kind of on both sides. And, and I would say that my work kind of lands squarely in the middle of that, where what we find is that, Yes, uh, students of color, uh, students from socially disadvantaged, economically and socially disadvantaged backgrounds tend to borrow quite a bit more than their counterparts. You find that these groups are also repaying their loans at much slower rates. What portion of college students take on debt to help pay for their schooling? Is it almost everybody? It's a large percent and a growing percent, but even 10 years ago, 2006, 2007, it was really only about 40 to 50 percent of college students, and now it's probably closer to 70 or 80 percent. What changed? I remember when I was going to school, there were people who had to work off their payments, but there wasn't so much talk about massive debt upon graduation. Well, I think one of the big thing that's changed is our model for higher education has changed dramatically over the past several decades. You know, we've seen basically uh, costs of higher education in terms of tuition uh, and beyond tuition in terms of things like room and board and cost of living creep up and up and up while at the same time uh, state and local appropriations and also federal aid has kind of stagnated. Um, and it's basically families and, you know, the students who are going to school who are kind of left to foot the bill. Even at the state-supported schools, tuition is so high many are taking on debt? Average debt tends to be higher at private institutions, but even at four-year publics, you're seeing a substantial amount of debt being taken out. Is this a good investment for students? Does it pay off? You know, that's a tough question because for a lot of folks, this debt um, and this investment will pay off, but for others it won't. So who is most burdened by student debt in your studies? Are there groups that are having a harder time than others? Yeah, what we're finding in our work is that uh, students of color, particularly black students, uh, and students from more socially and uh, economically disadvantaged backgrounds are the ones who are kind of struggling with the highest debt burdens and also struggling more to pay those debts off. So if you are from a household where neither of your parents have a college degree, you're the first one to kind of step foot on a college campus in your family, you end up with a lot more debt. And part of that is because, yeah, your parents can't help you pay this down, but also a lot of it is about cultural capital or cultural familiarity. So if you come from a college-educated background, your parents know how to kind of help you navigate that uh, college you're going to both financially and otherwise, maybe help you find scholarships or kind of help you navigate the institutions, the pitfalls. Um, First-generation college students just don't have that. Is there also a difference in what repayment looks like for some kids versus others? What did you find? There is a difference. So for starters, we know from the college scorecard data that uh, only 47 percent of young people who are not in default, who are in repayment, 
have made progress on their debt. That means they've paid a dollar or more towards their principal. So uh, that right there, when folks say, you know, student loan debt isn't a problem, we shouldn't worry about it. Well, when only half of borrowers who aren't in default, this is totally getting rid of folks who are in default, which isn't another question entirely. But when half of borrowers are not really making any progress five years out, that raises a lot of questions. And so this led uh, my colleague Feneba Addo and I at uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison to basically ask, what do these repayments look like by race? Uh, and what we're finding is that racial disparities or racial differences in debt when people leave college are big. They're large. We kind of knew that. But they get much, much bigger as people age. And so the racial disparity in debt we find at least doubles, if not triples uh, by the time young people hit their 30s. And what does that mean to you as far as lives? We think of college or getting a college degree as sort of this engine of upward mobility and that it can sort of solve a lot of our deep social inequities and inequalities. And and what this shows is that the payoffs to a college degree are, are so starkly different. And in an era where college costs are high and debt is high, uh, that black students are paying a higher cost of entry uh, for their college degree. And this is something that my colleague Louise Seamster has called predatory inclusion. That is, students of color have historically been barred from entering post-secondary institutions. Now that they have access, they have access on unequal terms. It's sad to me because you think we spend a lifetime with these young students telling them college is everything. Make sure you get to college. Make sure you go through it. And when they get there and find out they've got to take on a lot of debt, they just do because that's the formula. So I would add one more thing about the the race difference, and in terms of one more reason why we should be concerned about it. So sociologists have long talked about the fragility of middle class status for blacks. It is much harder for black families to make it to the middle class, and once black families get there, get there, it's so much easier for them to fall out. And this idea that these high levels of student loan debt among what is ostensibly the next generation of the black middle class might be what makes uh, this group fragile as well, just like their parents. If we could wave our wand and change the debt crisis in some way, do you have one or two recommendations on how we might restructure things politically? This is a great question. So the way I like to think about these interventions is, are, are do, is this an upstream solution or is it a downstream solution? That is, are we pulling drowning people out of the water or are we going upstream and preventing people from falling into the river in the first place? Um, and so I think we probably need a little bit of both here. You know, some of my colleagues are very much in favor of upstream solutions, and that is reinvestment in higher education. That's the free college movement, which has be, sort of become the, the moniker for progressives in the past several years. Um, but I also think there's some very simple things to do. So one thing that does seem to be less successful than it should be is income-based repayment, this idea that your student loan payments are tied to however much you make. Um, and it turns out that enrollment in IBR programs are, are really shockingly low. Um, and so if we try to think like behavioral economists in terms of nudges, maybe instead of making income-based repayments opt-in, where you have to go and sign up for them, we make them opt-out. And that is for the most vulnerable borrowers. That is the default setting is income-based repayment. What about colleges bringing down the cost of attendance? Colleges bringing down the cost of attendance, I mean, it's, it's a great idea in theory. The question is, how do you do that? So, I mean, one reason the costs of attendance have gone up uh, so much, particularly at state institutions, is that um, state appropriations to colleges have fallen dramatically. So if you take major flagship universities, uh, places like the University of Wisconsin-Madison or Penn State or perhaps UNC Chapel Hill, a lot of these 
places get less than 20% of their budget um, from from the state government. And, and these are not these are sort of state institutions by name only. And, and what happens is when when this occurs is these colleges become more tuition driven. Schools have, I would say, responded to the climate in which they're in. And if we could wave a magic wand and reduce prices, that would be great. But then we would have a lot of schools operating in the red. But the focus on tuition kind of misses the boat on the student loan debt crisis. Student loan debt, really very little of it is about tuition. So take Sweden for an example. Uh, Sweden has free college, free tuition, uh, and yet they have debt levels that are comparable to the United States. A lot of it is about... I can't really work and effectively study and get out of college in time. I need to rent a place. I need a place to lay my head, uh, and I need to eat. And so a lot of the student loan debt crisis is driven by living, living expenses, not necessarily tuition. How much of a factor do you think is the income cutoff for aid? So many hopeful parents reach the stage where they're about to send their children off to a pricey institution, fill out the FAFSA forms only to be told, eh, nothing, <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a great point. So that's something that my friends in the financial aid world refer to as the expected family contribution. Um, and for a lot of folks, the expected family contribution doesn't really take into account the family's expenses. You know, when we think about the middle class, middle class wages have stagnated over the past 30 years, and we're asking them to contribute more and more for, in this case, their kids' education. For a lot of people, the expected financial contribution just certainly isn't realistic. And in fact, I can say that I found that in my previous research. So if we look at the relationship between how much money your parents make and how much debt you end up with, actually where we find the highest debt loads are students who are kind of just beyond that financial aid cutoff. So most need-based aid, I'd say 90% of it, goes to uh, families who make less than $40,000 a year. Where we find the highest debt, in some ways not surprisingly, is those families who are just above those cutoffs. So coming from families who make forty to maybe $55,000 a year, those are the families with the most debt. What do you say to people who say, well, when I was coming through college, I simply buckled down, got as many extra side jobs as I needed, and I worked my way through? That's a great question. You know, there's so many think pieces out there about how financially irresponsible millennials are, right? You know, it's always the case where the generations before like to disparage the generation after. Um, and perhaps, you know, sort of my favorite foil when it comes to this is Congresswoman Virginia Fox, who espouses this exact same idea where she's basically been on the record as saying, you know what? Student loan de debtors, I have no sympathy for them at all because they're basically a bunch of irresponsible misanthropes. I, you know, I went to UNC Chapel Hill. I waited tables. I worked, um, and maybe it took me five, six years to graduate, um, but I, I left debt free, and and that's fine. Um, but the problem is, is that Virginia Fox's experiences in no way match up with the experiences of average students today. So uh, let's say, you know, Virginia Fox went to UNC Chapel Hill. She was an in-state resident, and she went there in 1968, right? So in today's dollars, tuition was around $2,000. Maybe room and board was around $5,300. Um, so maybe for, she'd be on the hook for $7,7400 a year, roughly. Um, and, you know, at the minimum wage at the time, it would only take her 20 hours a week to pay that off, busing tables, which is exactly what she said. But in 2013, tuition at UNC Chapel Hill was 8300 um, room and board and costs were 15000 almost $16,000. And so you're on the hook for around $24,000 a year, which under today's minimum wage, you would have to work 88 hours a week in order to pay off. And so Virginia Fox uh, might be able to say, you know, look, uh, I did it, so can you. But the reality is, no, they can't. 
Jason Houle is an assistant professor of sociology at Dartmouth College. If you watch television in the 90s, you've probably heard of ITT Tech. You can't get the jobs of tomorrow until you get the skills of today. Start by calling ITT Technical Institute. We'll send you an informative brochure on tomorrow's career. ITT Tech has since folded, but a new crop of for-profit colleges is expanding to fill the void. At Kaplan University, we can help prepare you for that career you always dreamed about. Discover Capella University's FlexPath. At DeVry University, we believe there are also lots of reasons to finish. You're ready for Strayer University. But as for-profit colleges have grown in number, so have their critics. My next guest is Stephanie Cellini, an associate professor of public policy at George Washington University. She says for-profit colleges are often promising something they can't deliver. There's more than 2,000 or so of these for-profit colleges that receive federal student aid, and there's many more thousands of these schools that don't receive federal student aid. They range from very large schools like the University of Phoenix, uh, which I believe is the largest institution of higher education in the country, to very small schools that are focused on one particular vocation. So, for example, cosmetology schools are often for-profit How long have they been around, for the most part, and haven't they been experiencing sort of boom and bust years, depending on the decade? Yeah, that's right. They've they've been around for a really long time. Over 100 years they've been around, and they do seem to go through these cycles around when the GI Bill was introduced. Um, There was some growth in the industry and then uh, a kind of crackdown in the 1950s. And then we saw this again. We saw growth in the 1970s with the expansion of federal student aid programs, and then another kind of crackdown again. And again, we saw this in the 1990s, and we saw under Bush Sr. some new what they call cohort default rate regulations. And those regulations led to the sanctioning of over a thousand for-profit colleges in the 1990s. So we saw them kind of ebb in the 1990s and then kind of grow again in the early 2000s. In the early 2000s, boy, did they grow. What was primarily responsible for that? Do you have numbers on how big they got? Yeah, well, they um, enrolled at their peak over 2 million students, and that accounted for about 12% of all higher education enrollment. They're now down to about 1.8 million, in, in my latest count, students. And really, the numbers, just from 2000 to 2010, the number of students close to quadrupled. Who are their biggest competitors? Who are they siphoning students away from? Uh, So I think the the kind of closest competitors and and biggest competitors are the public community colleges. Most of the certificates and degrees that for-profit colleges grant are at the kind of sub-baccalaureate level, so associate's degrees and certificates. So we're really thinking about those students as being able to choose potentially between community colleges and for-profit colleges. But it's also been interesting in the last few years, there's been a lot of growth in bachelor's degrees being offered by for-profit colleges as well. So there's still a fairly small share of overall for-profit enrollment. I think less than 20% is in these bachelor's degree programs and master's degree programs, but they are growing at this kind of uh, higher level of education now. Which charge more tuition, the community colleges or the for-profits? Oh, the for-profits charge much more tuition. Um, In fact, it's about five times higher in a for-profit college than in a community college. So I think the average in a for-profit for a year of your certificate program is about (gasps) $15,000. And I think that compares to about nationwide and community colleges, about 3,3500, something like that. Why do you think students, especially when so many of them really don't have means, are choosing the higher tuition for-profit schools? 
That's a great question and, and one that I've been trying to answer for a long time. My, my go-to answer here is that I think that students are taken in by advertising sometimes and may not have a lot of information about all their different college options. So for example, it may be that some students who might be first-generation college students don't have the information they need or access to networks that would help them choose or think about their options in terms of the public community college down the street that might offer the same program for a quarter the price. And they might see a nice advertisement on TV and call the 1-800 number <laughs> and get talked into a for-profit college uh, without having that kind of full information. And we, we were particularly concerned about this because a lot of the students in for-profit colleges, uh, you know, they enroll a disproportionate share of minority students, students from lower income backgrounds, you know, students who are single parents and may not have the time to investigate their college options, students who are working and older and returning to college uh, after many years in the workplace who don't have access to high school counselors, for example. So how should students look at the return on their investment? If you're a student who does not have means and you're thinking about a for-profit and a community college, what are some of the metrics that you have researched that helps a student know how to make a choice? Yeah, so I think um, something that's very important to think about is the bump in earnings you get from kind of before to after. Are you getting that kind of increase that you might expect from going to college? And is that enough to kind of cover the debt that you're going to incur? So to do this, I've been doing some research with data from the tr U.S. Treasury using tax returns as well as the Department of Ed. And we have a very large sample of students who were graduating right around the recession. And we looked at this kind of after minus before earnings gain, this kind of value added of the education. And we compared for-profit students and certificate programs to public students in community colleges in similar certificate programs. Certificates in vehicles maintenance, in cosmetology, in health assisting, in health administration, uh, those types of fields. Right. You might think about a public sector student in the local community college who's a woman in her 30s in Washington, D.C., in a health assistant program, matched with a student in a for-profit college, also in Washington, D.C., also in her 30s, also in a health assistant program, but in a for-profit. So in the public sector, those students who got these certificates, uh, their earnings went up by about $1,500. And then for-profit students, their earnings were actually going down by about $920. And so this kind of difference between the two, which is what we were really interested in, the difference between them was this gap of about you know $2,500 or so. So your research is showing for-profit colleges are costing more and giving less? That's exactly right. For-profit colleges are definitely costing a lot more for students. Um, and they are giving them less. Their earnings gains are a lot lower than going to a public institution. And then we can also take into account the fact that 75% or so of for-profit students are actually borrowing compared to just 20% of community college students. And they're paying a lot more. So I think the average debt for a for-profit student is about $6,000, and the average debt of a community college student is about $900. What about the experience of dropouts for community college and for for-profit colleges? Are they comparable? Yeah, this is a very interesting case. So in our research, the dropouts in our study from for-profit colleges do quite a bit worse. They have very large declines in earnings relative to before. Um, and in contrast, the dropouts from public community colleges actually see a small increase in their earnings. So it seems as though that taking a few classes at a community college might boost your earnings and, and help you get a job um, and kind of be a, a signal to an employer that you took a good quality course at a local public institution that has a good reputation. And what I am concerned about is in the for-profits, it seems that if you take a couple courses in that for-profit, 
it could almost be a negative signal of quality that you started at a for-profit and you weren't able to complete. Is there any understanding of why for-profit universities target the poorest students for recruitment, even though they have the higher tuition rates? This just seems counterintuitive. Yeah, it does seem counterintuitive, um, but maybe not when you think about the role of federal student aid. So federal student aid allows students to get a Pell Grant, for example, for about close to $6,000 to pay for their education, and then they can borrow. And what, what percent of their revenue at the for-profit colleges is coming from government aid from these students? On average, about 70% of the revenue that for-profit colleges get comes from federal student aid programs. And that is counting only the Pell Grant and student loan programs and not counting money coming from the GI Bill and other programs that are targeted towards military students and veterans. Um, So in fact, they may be getting even more of their revenue from federal government sources than just that 70% that I mentioned there. So I think federal student aid is really important to get students access to college. Um, But what I worry about is that Some of the colleges, and the for-profit colleges in particular, um, have not really shown that they can kind of make that earnings gain happen. They haven't really shown that value. Um, So I think we need to be very careful about making sure that these institutions really prove their worth before they're um, able to give out federal student aid. Is there a role for for for-profit colleges, in your opinion? I think there is a role for for for-profit colleges. I think filling some of the gaps, um, particularly if community colleges have, you know, wait lists for their nursing program or something like that, I think there might be a role for for for-profits to step in and help ease those constraints and give students some of the training they need. But I do think we need to look carefully at the for-profit sector because I think the incentives of the institutions are slightly different. I think the profit incentive and, and knowing that the profits do not need to be reinvested into the institution, but they can be given out to shareholders, I think it's a different mission. And I think it's a different, it creates different incentives for the institution that I do think we need to be concerned about. That is fascinating. Stephanie Cellini, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Thanks for having me. Stephanie Cellini is an associate professor of economics, public policy, and public administration at George Washington University. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues, uvahealth.com. Support also comes from Smithfield, a global food company committed to providing food in a responsible way so consumers can share meals and memories with family and friends. Smithfieldfoods.com With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Our intern is Adriana Gallo. Special thanks this week to Peter Solomon of WCVE in Richmond. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.